Dennis Prager here. If you have a business or real estate dispute, I strongly recommend that you call Barack Lurie. Barack, you recently handled a case where one brother was suing his two brothers, your clients. What happened? Well, Dennis, the two brothers struggled but succeeded to build three restaurants. But when the third brother returned from being out of the country for 20 years, he sued to get one-third of their business. He claimed an oral deal between them because he had once worked as a cook for them. So what did you do? Well, during trial, we got him to acknowledge certain key dates and to his complete lack of documentation. So when his side rested, we asked the court for what's called a directed verdict, a motion that gets rid of a case after fatal facts come out during trial. And the court agreed, shooting down all but one of the brothers' causes of action. And we settled that one for a very small amount and excused the jury. And justice was done. My friends, you know that I trust Barack Lurie with my own business and other legalities. So to make sure a deal is done right, call him for your own legal issues. At 866-575-8111, that's 866-575-8111. Fighting for what's right, Barack Lurie at Lurie and Park, 866-575-8111. Podcast. Thanks so much for listening, tuning in. With me, my friend and producer, as always, Ari David. Always a pleasure. And uh, we have uh, very interesting things going on. First, I'd like to talk about, you know, we're just about to hit the November elections. All right. And I, I want to make this a little bit more timeless. So, yes, we'll talk about the upcoming elections, but we'll speak about them as though they have already happened because some things are pretty clear as it is that the Republicans will take the Senate. And uh, we're hoping that it will be a substantial takeover of the Senate, hopefully more than just 51. Uh, but, you know, good for, for purposes of this podcast, we'll assume that it's 51 or more and uh, what that means in the future going forward. And, uh, and what, also looking ahead to 2016 and the presidential elections. But before I do that, I want to talk about um, a very interesting um, obituary. Not an obituary in the ordinary sense. No, no, no. This is an obituary uh, that a presently living 95-year-old man wrote when he was 90 years old. I suppose he figured that things were going to happen with, you know, fairly shortly after 90 years old, but he kept on living to 95. And God willing, he lived to 120, as they say. But he decided to write an obituary for himself. And because this is the way he wants to be remembered. So he figured he'll take the helm about how, to, uh, how people should remember him. And by the way, it's of no consequence that he's 90 or 95 right now. Uh, one should be able to do this anytime, right? I mean, if you're six years old, you should be able to write your obituary and just constantly update it if you want, right? Just like a will. So why not do that? Because who knows when you might die, Right. So it, it's only a lawyer like you would think about that. Yeah, no. just write it, update it. Yeah, just update it, right? I mean, if, if, but no, but the reason why I bring it up is because this man, and this is part of my point, is that it's so narcissistic, isn't it, to write an obituary? This is the way I want you to remember me. Okay, and he, he it's a he's a funny animal because let's let's face it, when we go to a funeral and we're there because you know we're a friend of the father whose wife has died and the wife is now passed on and we're going to that funeral and uh, you go out and you and you're there to support the family you're not there to to listen to the long litany of all the accomplishments of this woman 
and what she believed, and then you know, then what, what happens then? You leave, and even if you remember all those things, you know, it goes away after half an hour, right? Why would you even bother? It's totally disinterested at that point. Okay, so it, that's the narcissism to think that people actually give a crap <laughs> at some point. <laughs> so that's the funeral situation. You know, we, we don't we don't give a crap. We uh, we're there to support the living. Okay, we that's what that's what it's all about. And the kindness, and she was a nice mother, and wow, she seemed like really fun. And but we're not here to to do anything more than that. Okay. But this guy thinks that he's going to leave a legacy. And by golly, you better think of the legacy the way I want you to think. And I'm going to control this legacy by hook or by, by crook. So anyway, a friend of mine gives me this, um, and he, t he tells me this story about this. Isn't this really, he thought it was wonderful. And isn't it wonderful that this man decided to, to write his own obituary and uh, reveal his accomplishments and his personal philosophies of life? Okay, so it's not enough to just get a resume. I have to now hear his, his mumbo-jumbo about whatever. So, so I said, and, and, he, and, and he thought it was wonderful, my friend. So I'm, I'm listening to him, and, he, and I said, why do you think that's so wonderful? I mean, it's kind of morbid, first of all. And secondly, he obviously is spending a, you know, some time on this. It's weird, just weird to control everyone's opinion about him. He goes, oh, but, but it really reflects some wisdom. You know, you got to give credit to a man who's 90 years old, now 95. You know, when he wrote it when he was 90, you know, he really, um, there's something to be said about this, Barack. And would you like to see it? So I said, sure, why not? Because he's a friend. So 10 minutes later, he comes by my office. He's printed it out. It's about 20 pages, this thing. And I said, Michael, what the frig? I, you know, <laughs> I can't read this crap. And why does anyone think anyone's going to read this crap? I've got enough reading to do. I'm a lawyer. And, I, and this guy's got chapters. He's got a table of contents for his eulogy, for his obituary. What the frig? <laughs> this, this is madness. I, I, <laughs> so I'm going through this. And I'm reading it carefully because, you know, my job is to read things carefully, right? And I'm thinking to myself as a page two, why am I reading this so carefully? <laughs> what, what's the matter with me? This guy... <laughs> He may, he may be dead as I'm reading it. <laughs> who, who am I trying to impress here? <laughs> so I do what I do best. <laughs> and I skim through this nonsense. And I wonder, what am I going to do here? So, so he, you know, it's, it's one thing after the other about his accomplishments. You know, you know, he worked as an engineer of some kind. He participated in the invention of this and of that. You know, it's somewhat impressive. But I, I suppose that if you live 90 years on the planet, you're, you're bound to do something impressive, right? I mean, you, you can't stumble upon. You've got to invent something cool. <laughs> For crying out loud, 90 years old. <laughs> anyway, so... Hey, there's a long list. It's five pages of things. And then in 1941, I saw December 7th, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so he goes on, and, and, and that's impressive. You know, 90, 90 years old, he's bound to also bump into a lot of interesting historical moments. And I'm just bored out of my mind. And then there's a chapter about philosophical approaches to life. Okay, so, okay, now we're going to see what the, the wisdom he's going to convey. Okay, so 90 years old, like my friend Michael said. He's going to convey wisdom. It's time to read and, and digest appropriately. So I'm, listening, I'm reading this stuff, and he's saying about the, the great men that he felt uh, existed during his lifetime, including uh, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, 
uh, Cesar Chavez, <laughs> and all these. I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? And then he, he says, you know, and people, you know, communism really gets a bad rap. But as I get older in my life, I begin to think, yes, you know, it it, it was it was executed very poorly. But the reality is, what's wrong with that? That the notion of to each according to their ability to each according to their need or whatever that stupid phrase is that never worked in history, right? So, and, and he says, you know, we should adopt that. That's a wonderful thing. And I just stopped reading at that point. And, and I, I said, so it's really possible. I turned to Michael and he goes, so it's really possible, isn't it? And he said, what are you talking about? Is it really possible? You know, he knew, he knew I was referring to the obituary. It's really possible that a, a man can live 90 years on the planet and still not learn a piece of crap. Just nothing. He can't even learn that that crap stinks, right? Isn't that one of the things that you learn over time, right? Hopefully you learn that quickly, okay? But I, I've learned that crap stinks. How about you? Yes? Okay, good. I've also learned <laughs> that if you don't shower, you probably won't smell either, speaking about stinking, right? I learned if you eat too many fatty foods and cholesterol, you might get a heart attack. I've learned that uh, I, I like music, but not my music too loud, all right? I... I, I, I like I like movies about war, and I don't like movies about daffodils. Okay, I, this is what I've learned on the planet. Okay, I've learned that people are basically self-interested, and uh, you give them an opportunity, they'll take it, take the opportunity. I, I, I also learned that you need to stand up for yourself because if you don't, nobody else will. Things like this, right? And what does this man learn? He hasn't learned that communism kills. He hasn't learned that atheism kills. I, I was just—I was so fascinated by this, and I said, "Michael, you yourself are." He's in his late seventies. He's a great man. He's a great lawyer, by the way. And I say, uh, "How is it that anyone your age or younger can possibly have come to this conclusion after all this time on the planet?" And suddenly. He became, and this man became, the one I was reading from, he became an interesting case study for me. And I said, I'm going to talk about this in my next podcast because I'm fascinated by this. How could you possibly not get it? And I, and I wonder, you and I have spoken before about, you know, why it is that we have so many, and I'm not saying this man is evil, but why, is there, why are there so many evil people out there, right? And you said it very well that, that possibly it's because we need... Um, uh, you know, something to sharpen our knives, right? The, the, a whetstone. A whetstone to sharpen the knives. I like that so much. Uh, it was a really good description. Perhaps that's what their, their purpose is, you know. And, and I'm, I'm glad I'm not the whetstone for anybody else. I, I'm not one of those people, right? I, I would feel like, like the, the eunuchs of the old days of the Bible, right? Where you, you know, they serve a purpose. And their purpose is just to guard the harem. The king's harem, right? And you, you know, one day you wake up and you say, "Oh, frig, man, I'm a eunuch now. <laughs> that that's my that's my role in life is just to serve other people." And that's the last thing that you would want to be. I mean, it, it, what a shame! It's, it's it's as if his role in life was to adopt this stupid mentality so that others could gain wisdom. I bet you. Um, I bet you that this man has no understanding of God. And I'll tell you, in that entire obituary, there was no reference to God whatsoever. Maybe he does believe in God, but that would be 
very surprising to me. Very surprising. Anyway, what a shame that uh, you would serve as a whetstone for anybody else's knife, right? That this is, this is your job in life. This is your role. And um, anyway, maybe that's, that's his ultimate purpose. Uh, there, there's to live that long and not to have simple, straightforward wisdom to, to know that communism is just moronic. Okay? It just doesn't work. Socialism, likewise, um, is maddeningly a failure. And it has failed in every context it has ever been tried. So, uh, you know, please, and, and please, my dear listeners, if you know of an example where true socialism has worked, not that it's worked in spite of itself, right? Where it's mixed, mixed in with another society. It's, for example, Israel uh, had a lot of socialism, and now it's much more capitalist. And now it's thriving. But it still has some socialist aspects in Israel. But you wouldn't say that socialism is working, and, and Israel is a good example of that. No. The socialism is working. Um, it, it, sorry, it's, it's only existing in a capitalist society. And it's working at the expense of the capitalist society. Okay, it's draining the capitalist society. So that's the way it works, and he didn't, he didn't figure that out. Anyway, I, I was fascinated by that. Uh, and it leads me now to our next point. And we were saying uh, before about um, the, the upcoming elections. And I want to talk about it as though it has already occurred. Let's assume that, that we now have a majority of Republicans in both the, the, the House. We know that that's going to happen, and we'll even pick up some seats there. But the Senate's the big play here, and it looks like we will have a majority. I'm very pleased about that, of course, that we now have an, a majority. It's, it's a done deal, pretty much. Um, but what does it mean? It means principally, and I'm curious what you think, Ari, but I know that principally for me, it means that there will be no more, it's not that it won't be any more judicial appointments, but that Obama will have to be much more careful with his judicial nominees because it's an up and down vote now. It has to be, it has to be 51%, right? So if they don't approve, they don't approve. And try again and again and again. But interestingly, I, I wonder if the Republicans will take a stand because um, this is one major difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. They don't seem to understand that the, the Democrats play a very different game when it comes to judicial nominees. The Democrats, when they get a judicial nominee that the Republican president appoints, they will evaluate how they like that potential appointment's uh, decisions, his past judicial decisions and opinions. Okay, and did he did he rule the right way on abortion, on gay rights, and such like that? That's not the right way to evaluate uh, a judge, a Supreme Court judge, or otherwise. The right right way to determine a judge constitutionally is whether or not he is qualified. Period. Not what his opinions are, but whether or not he's qualified. And we Republicans, when we pass judgment on a potential nominee, we ask that question, which is the correct question. Is he or she qualified to be a Supreme Court justice or any judge in the district system? And that's why even somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is clearly a, a far left, I wouldn't say loony, but she's very, very far left, 
That's why we said okay to her with 93% approval, something like some outrageously high number. But when it becomes the Republicans, when they choose a nominee, we barely get it over the 50-yard line, as it were. It's, really, it's a different standard. So I wonder if the Republicans will be as aggressive and, and actually you know, hold uh, Obama's feet to the fire and make sure that we get really good, qualified uh, justices, not just, uh, and actually challenge them, and actually not just qualified, but also you know, play him at his own game, the Democrats' own game. So that's one thing. Um, otherwise, uh, it's, it's, this is a great opportunity to uh, balance a budget. It's really to just force it down Obama's throat, as it were. The Senate can pass it. The House can pass it. And now they lay it in front of his, his desk. And uh, if he says no, then he's got some explaining to do. Right? It'll be very interesting. Uh, very interesting. Uh, there's the immigration issues and such. But how do you think he's going to respond? I mean, you know, I, I, my, my concern is that he's going to do a lot of executive orders and uh, decide to just rule by fiat. That's the way it's going to be. So, and then 2016 rolls around. And if good things happen uh, in these next two years somehow, somehow the economy improves a little bit because, let's say, the, the Republicans force a balancing of the budget, which is good for the economy. Um, and they detract from nonsense programs, then uh, he'll take credit for it. He'll say, my plans worked. It was great. You can thank me, Obama. And who, who benefits from that? One Hillary Clinton, or whoever the Democratic nominee is going to be. Be fascinating, my friend. It'll be fascinating. Uh, what do you think? You think it's going to come out? Uh, that, that, is there something else that the Republicans should be doing? Well, what, you know, we've talked before about this, and my concern with it is that the Republicans who are going to win are going to be of the establishment party ilk who, you know how uh, you'll hear over and over again when Republicans attack a Democrat senator in this last campaign, they'll say things like, this guy voted with Obama 97% of the time, 96% of the time, 98% of the time. It, to me, that's one of the worst arguments ever to make because John Boehner's voted with Obama 16, I mean, 89% uh, of the time. You know, what, 7% makes a difference? So the point is the leaders of the House and the leaders of the Senate are always looking to make consensus, no matter how damaging it is for their party yeah. in the country. Yeah. And those are the people who are going to be in charge of the House and Senate in the future, uh, uh, two years leading up to 2016. So I don't see any difference whatsoever. Yeah, but what do you say? Okay, let's say that we had more Ted Cruz's and such in the uh, Senate and otherwise, and in the House. Um, what, what do you think would be the opportunity for the Republicans now? Um, to follow through with the lawsuits against the administration on the uh, IRS uh, Benghazi scandal, Fast and Furious, perhaps even impeachment. I think one of the worst things both Boehner and McConnell did is assuring the public that impeachment is off the table. How do you do, even if you're not planning on impeaching a president, and you shouldn't be until something bad happened, what signal does it send if you're not going to use the one recourse you have against the president for his lawlessness? Aren't you, yeah, aren't you give, giving him exactly the comfort that he's, he's looking for? Yes. Uh, it seems to me that's something very similar to uh, the president himself when he said, uh, I, will never, I will take ground troops off the table. <laughs> Make no mistake, so to speak, right? Well, it's just the same it, thing. And even more. He said it about Iran. Trust me, when it comes to Iran, 
uh, military force off the table. We are going to reach an agreement in our negotiations. But never asking the question, well, what if Iran doesn't want to reach an agreement that involves giving up their nuclear program? Oh, okay, so we're going to reach an agreement where they get to keep their nuclear program? Is that really an agreement? So, you, you know, it's funny. He, yeah. Kabuki. Yeah. He, he's, it's funny. He's a lawyer. Um, I just, you know, I, I don't know how much he actually practiced, but he certainly acts like uh, somebody who has never practiced law whatsoever. And the one thing you know that, because I, I have to go into mediation, into, which is a, a form of settlement, right? It's a mediation conference. You try to mediate, try to, try to resolve your disputes. And, and the one thing you know is you have to have some backup. You have to be able to say, um, listen, if you don't settle the way we want, we're going to go all the way with this and we're going to get a judgment for a much bigger amount. You know, and then we get to collect uh, at 10% uh, a year. And we also get to collect our attorney's fees. And there might be a chance of punitive damages. And I think we can prove punitive damages. And that might be three times the amount that you're looking at. So, my friend, uh, and here are all the damning emails that prove our case. So maybe you ought to think about settling. That's the way you settle a case, right? You, you come prepared. You, it's a, it, like a chess game. You, you, you don't just start taking off pieces off. That's what Obama's doing. He takes, he takes the bishop, uh, the knight, and, and, and maybe even a queen off the table. His own. His own? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. No, if he took Not off the theirs, no, that'd be wonderful. If he, he takes his own pieces off the table and say, okay, now let's play, and thinks that he can still win this game or get a good result. Yeah, and we saw the same thing, if you remember recent history. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's the height of naivete, right? When you think that you can extract something good by constantly pulling back. I, uh, all right, go ahead. And don't forget, yeah. we know this is what's actually going to happen because John Boehner has not just said it, done it. 2011, when he took the Speaker's office, remember all those budget and tax negotiations in which once an impasse with Obama was reached, Boehner started negotiating with himself doing exactly what you're saying, taking his own chess pieces off the table under the rationale that Obama will back down if I back down, like you brought the analogy of Unix. Here, I know it'll cut off the other guy's balls. I'll cut off my own first. Does that really work? Of course not. Right. Well, it's a family show, and yet we've said that phrase. But I think we'll be okay. I think we're still going to get our PG-13 rating. How about that? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Look, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, this, is, this is not the way to um, pursue a presidency. It's not the way to represent the country. And you see, this is actually a theme in the Obama administration. And, and we're, we're guilty of it in a negligent way, but I think he's doing it in a purpose. He, Obama, does it in a purposeful way. His theme seems to be you know, pull away the weapons, the tools that you actually have, the, the assets you do have, so that you can never actually come in and, and press your advantage. He even does it for other countries. For example, when he betrayed Israel and told the world that Israel had an agreement with Azerbaijan, right, to, to use them for fueling purposes so they could continue on on their merry way to Iran. Right? Do you remember this? That was yeah. like and two, two and a half years ago. To Poland and Hungary and uh, Czech, the Czech Republic vis-a-vis -vis the uh, uh, missile defense system yeah. when we first took office. Yeah, I, I think he's we're done this to Taiwan. He's he's he literally takes away the weapons, literally and figuratively. 
So I think we're seeing a theme here, aren't we? Yes. Pull away, you know, our, the, our strength one way or the other. Minimize our strength and then claim your negotiating. Right. And it's one thing, my point about this in the big picture of the context of what you're talking about, the Senate and the House races, is it's one thing for Obama to be doing that in the world stage. And he's in the adversarial party from our political stance. So, of course, we're going to have disagreements with him on different things. Right. Some Democrats more than others with him quite a bit. But it's an entirely another thing when members of our own party do it. Yeah. And that's what concerns me, meaning it's almost better to have Harry Reid to have control of the Senate because at least we have someone to run against. Yeah, well, I understand. At least, uh, okay, that's a good point. Um, but all the same. A painful we, point. Yeah, I agree. We, it is. Horrible. We still need to push it. And um, yeah, you're right. Uh, when Boehner is, you know, he's playing the crying game all the time, you know, with the, it's just such a crybaby, this guy. It's and embarrassing. It, it really is embarrassing. And he doesn't know how to simply say, Mr. President, we, you, you need to lead this country, and you're not leading it. And if you can't do it, we're going to go forward with this, and we expect you to sign this because America has spoken and spoken loudly. Sign this bill. Both the House and the Senate have demanded it, and that is the reflection of the people's will, sir. Yeah, and we're and something, not, something like right. that. And we're not afraid of you shutting down the government. You shut the down the government. I don't care what the media says about it. Shut it down. Right. And see, in six weeks, eight weeks, they won't remember. In an, a related story today, in well, oh, speaking about speaking of that, by the way, uh, remember that there were shutdowns before, and it seems to be having no impact on this election, at least. Um, and people don't seem to have that memory. And, and remember all the NBC, M- MSNBC uh, folks who, who are saying this is going to cripple them in 2014. And they'll rue the day that they allowed another uh, government breakdown. And, and, that, and it's not, not happening at all. Even, and forget MSNBC, Crowdhammer said as much about what Ted Cruz did. Yeah. And then, and then this, is, this is the cherry on top of the Sunday. Kevin McCarthy, who replaced Eric Cantor as the majority whip in the House, right. came out in an interview with Politico today saying one of the major things on the agenda for him moving forward with the new Congress will be immigration reform. Oh, okay, well, that sounds great. Compromise, reaching across the table, right? Ignoring the fact that the election hasn't been held yet, number one. Okay, so we haven't won the Senate yet. Number two, border security is the most popular issue for Republican voters, and it's like third for most Democrat voters. 67%. Talk about wanting to reach across the aisle for a political see, issue that's see, popular. When you say that, I hear there's the opportunity. Yes. Right. And not only is that the opportunity, but Kevin McCarthy is throwing away the opportunity first, and then second of all, what didn't he learn from Eric Cantor's humiliating defeat? Eric Cantor was not strong on border security issues and thus lost in his district to an unknown. And now the new guy who's replacing the old guy won't learn a week and a half before an election, a major election, to keep his mouth shut on that issue, even if he intends on opening the border, which he shouldn't. Don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, okay, it's, 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 we're on the same page on this, yeah, and, and, and it's, this is this is. But, but we're talking about what the opportunity is for these next two years. And look, when when Newt Gingrich uh, did his contract for America, it was such a great cohesive moment in American history, and great things got accomplished. And and how could we 
Well, I guess we need the personalities to do it. We need, yeah, we, my point is the opportunity is there. If the Republicans would just be strong on the border, if they would just provide leadership, adversarial leadership to Obama, and have some respect for themselves and yeah. stand up you know for what, them. You know what this reminds me of is uh, the Civil War. And uh, up through 19, sorry, 1863 or so, um, they had uh, just the war was being prosecuted horribly. Uh, on the northern side, I'm talking about that the South kept on winning or at least stalemating all these different battles. It was a horrific war, as you know. It should never have got to the point it did. So it begs the question, why? The reason why is that the South had General Lee, who was a brilliant general, brilliant, and he was consistently brilliant, and he was consistently there. Uh, the North uh, had one incompetent general after the other, uh, concluding, uh, I think, just before Grant came into the picture, who changed the war. Uh, McClellan, who just, and this is why it reminds me, he once had the opportunity to take this major town, I forget what it was right now, escapes me, but he just sat there while, uh, while the enemy was just a sitting duck. And he sat and he just couldn't believe that he would do it. He just imagined that the enemy was, was somehow going to surprise him and that it, it wasn't as easy as it looked. So he never took it. And he kept on waiting for months, and, which drew the famous line uh, from Lincoln, which is, uh, excuse me, General, if you're not going to use my army, can I please have it back, right? Um, so... And then, of course, the, the, the South actually developed its army there, and they were able to actually draw reinforcements and actually created the very stronger army that McClellan was fearing. Oh, what an idiot. Exactly. I mean, that, that's exactly. And this is what's happening here. Yeah, and it's happened. We have this opportunity to, to seize and take the day. Let's, let's get great immigration reform. Let's, I'm not even reform. Just Border do it. Security. Border security. That's all we need. Insist on it. Yeah. And, and say, shut the government down. If and, and the Republicans... Stability in the budget. Cut these yeah. crazy programs. Repeal Obamacare. Do it. Or even if you can't repeal it, defund it. Defund the whole thing. Right. And then challenge Obama and say, you think this isn't popular? We dare you to use your bully pulpit to argue against these things. Right. Uh, because you, nobody's listening to you Ebola, anymore. Insist. Defund the FAA until they have a travel ban. And tell the public, we've shut down the FAA. There is, there is a travel ban, de facto travel ban. We've shut it down. All right, see, you see, folks, this is, this is what happens when you ask Ari, what does he think? Yeah, <laughs> it's he'll good tell stuff. You. <laughs> he'll he tell will you. tell you. It might be a five-hour speech where you are required to stand the whole time and applaud, but I will tell you. Yes, I will. Yes, we can. All right, let's move on to another topic, uh, and that is about Hillary Clinton's latest uh, comments uh, before a, uh, a you know, favorable crowd in which she says a, a very friendly crowd, very, very friendly. Uh, and, she, and she says with her southern drawl, don't let anyone tell you that businesses and corporations create jobs. No, sir. And, uh, and, and that's called trickle-down economics. And that has failed catastrophically, she says. Okay. So, and then the other nonsense, that, and how, how she and uh, Bill brought arithmetic to Washington, as if somehow, you know, their increasing the deficit was arithmetic. But that's another story. Um, <laughs> I could be a little gross about this, so I will not bring numbers into the, the Clinton presidency, nor will you, okay? I can't say one Tower 1 of the World Trade Center collapsing plus World Trade Center Tower 2 collapsing equals two collapsed towers of the World Trade Center is the Clinton legacy. 
Is that some mirth? Well, I was talking about numbers of cigars in the White House, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> Number of dresses. Hasn't she gone through enough? Yes, really? that's true. You know, what? She, she really just, it, it would be cool if she just went conservative. That would be cool. Then, then we would embrace her. Somebody would embrace her. That's the cool thing. Now nobody wants to touch her, so to speak, because, well, you know, she's, she was uh, a, a mocking situation. You know, she was the, um, a catalyst for mocking uh, Bill Clinton, um, and the liberals didn't want anything to do with her because, you know, there's all this conflict and such. So she's got, she got caught between the Scylla and the Charybdis, as they say, right? I mean, it's, it's just a rock and a hard place. She, she should have just simply gone conservative and simply said, you know, I, I, I really embrace the conservative cause. I see the wisdom in conservatism. And we would, we would embrace her. And then she would talk about how liberals think. And she would talk about how liberals, that what Bill Clinton had done was emblematic of the entitlement attitude that Democrats have. She, would, she could play even as a victim, so to speak. But anyway, that's another story. Where I really want to go is uh, with this, what, what, what she actually said about the businesses and the corporations not creating jobs and such. Uh, not so much the, uh, you know, to, to drill down on, on the arithmetic issue. Look, this, this notion that somehow, there's two things she said, right? And offline, you and I spoke about the ultimate purpose of it. Look, Hillary Clinton, we, we certainly don't like her politics. We, we, we think she's bad for the country. We totally disagree on virtually every level of what she believes. Every level. But she's clearly a bright woman. Okay? She's, she's very intelligent. Okay? So, so what? Right? You say, because very bright people have done very evil things. Because we, we acknowledge that. I mean, Pol Pot was a very intelligent man but he committed such horrific horrors. Likewise with Mao, likewise with uh, uh, Lenin, he was brilliant, okay? Um, but, but that, so it doesn't matter, okay? Intelligence is not, it does not make you a good person. You can, just like uh, a gun does not make uh, the person who's holding it a, a, a good person, right? You can use a gun for, for violence, for, for horrible things, or for good things. So intelligence is a weapon, it can make you can use it for doing good, or you can use it for doing bad. There's nothing intelligent. There's nothing in intelligence inherently that makes you do good things. Okay, so now that we've established that, she is not uh, a good person. She's a very intelligent person, but she's not a good person. And this statement that she made about "don't let anyone fool you" or say you know tell you that uh, businesses and corporations create jobs. She, she's clearly, she, she knows better. She knows that in, indeed businesses and, and corporations do create jobs. They're the ones who provide the jobs. Now the answer that, uh, that you know, it begs the question, well, what, what does she think creates jobs? Is it A, the government? You know, that, that uh, by virtue of passing laws and, and, and enabling us to be free somehow, that, that they, they really are the great source of all, of all jobs. Kind of like, you know, the sun is really responsible for our lives, right? When you think about it, right? If, without the sun, you can't have gravity, and we would spin recklessly uh, out of the solar system, and we wouldn't have an atmosphere, and so on. That's the way she views government, and I think a lot of liberals view the government like that. The government is the sun, and we all are, are totally dependent on the government, right? So 
having said that, there's no way she actually believes what she says. Just she's too intelligent for that. Okay, because she she herself has a lot of private uh, entities and people that that she works with. She's seen it. Okay, and and the the labor statistics don't come from jobs associated with the government. They come from people like ADP, which take private business numbers and they report it publicly, and that's how they tell what the, the employment, that, that helps the employment rate, right? So, but then she says the other thing, which is we know that it's failed spectacularly, all right? Which begs the question, how so? Tell me, are you saying, uh, Mrs. Clinton, are you saying that capitalism has failed spectacularly? What, what are you saying? What, what, is the, what is the alternative as the famous line to Michael Moore once was, which is, uh, well, if you, if you don't like capitalism, what system would you propose? And he said the famous response, I don't know, we'll think of something, which was everything I needed to know about Michael Moore, but more importantly, everything that is the left, because they don't have an answer to the question in reality. And just like this speech and these comments that Hillary Clinton just said, it reflects that she doesn't have an alternative. She doesn't want it, and, but she's too bright. That's the point. And the reason why, and you brought this up very well, Ari, offline, the reason why is that she's playing to her base, and she's, playing, she's, she's hoping to extract a lot of the Elizabeth Warren followers that she sees on the horizon as a threat to her. So she wants to nip that at the bud, take those followers and dilute the Elizabeth Warren message because she's going to be Elizabeth Warren for the time being. She'll tack far to the left and then uh, keep up the momentum, galvanize the base, and Elizabeth Warren won't, won't even know what hit her. That's the theory, and, and that's your point as well. So, I, you know, I, I hate seeing these kind of politics. It, it angers me so when it's so transparent, but there it is because... Like I said, she's far too intelligent to know, to actually believe what she's saying. Anyway, uh, we have a lot to expect in the upcoming November 4 election. Uh, but like I said, we're already looking ahead to that. And we're looking forward to a very promising uh, next two years if we decide to do it right. This is Brooklyn. This has been the Brooklyn Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.